everybody. In our last episode, we talked about minoritized languages, and this episode is not necessarily building on that, but it is most definitely related. If you are a speaker of a minoritized language, meaning a language that is not the majority language of your environment, you may have encountered prejudices and negative attitudes, or you may have had problems accessing information in your language. But you might also feel a deep emotional connection to the language, a sense of pride for and belonging to the community. According to Rémi Coissel on the website of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, they say, the freedom to express ourselves through language is a fundamental human right. So if you want to hear about this topic, the romanticization, the complexity, and the challenges that come with this, please keep on listening. So it's me again, Eva Maria, and today I'm joined by Vittoria. Hi, Vittoria. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm really excited for today's topic. Yeah, as you just said, we're both very excited to welcome you back to another episode of Much Language Such Talk. Today's episode is dedicated to Human Rights Day, which we celebrated on December 10th. As mentioned in the intro, and as you can tell by the title of the episode, we want to discuss language as a human right. For this, we invited a very special guest, and we are honored and privileged to have him with us today, Fernand de Varenne. <laughs> Professor de Varenne was appointed United Nations Special Rapporteur on Minority Issues by the Human Rights Council and assumed his functions in August 2017. He's extraordinary professor at the Faculty of Law of the University of Pretoria, adjunct professor at the National University of Ireland, Galway, and visiting professor at the Faculty of Law of the University of Hong Kong. His work and commitment focuses on the human rights of minorities, as well as the prevention of ethnic conflicts, the rights of migrants, the relationship between ethnicity, human rights, and democracies, and the use of federalism in balancing competing cultural interests. His contributions on these topics span the world, including a professorship for almost 20 years at Murdoch University in Australia, and as a guest professor at 12 different institutions in Africa, Asia, and Europe. Professor de Varenne has written reports for and spoken in numerous forums on these issues, including before the UN committees and the European Parliament. So we are delighted and honored to welcome him to the podcast. Let's just dive right in, shall we? Vittoria, take it away. So we just heard about your professional experiences, which is already an extensive list, although we only provided a rough outline, of course. But how did you become interested in minority rights more broadly? Oh, thank you very much for that question, Vittoria. The interest actually goes back perhaps even to my own background as a member of a linguistic minority. I grew up in Canada, I'm French-Canadian, and I grew up in a part of Canada, the province of New Brunswick, which is also officially bilingual, where the French-speaking population is a minority. So I guess my own life experience probably is at the seed for my interest. But it is a little bit later that I started getting involved in community organizations for the French community, French-speaking community in Eastern Canada called Acadians. And eventually when I started to work uh, or to study even in, in the area of human rights and law, I actually almost naturally gravitated towards an interest on language rights. That's amazing. Really interesting, yeah. Yeah. And when were you first confronted with minoritized languages? Well, I think, uh, first of all, there's an interesting difference in terminology. At the United Nations, the global level, we do not talk about minoritized languages. The concept of minority, at least in terms of the international human rights system, refers to a purely, if you will, demographic concept in a sense as to whether a language group within a state, the whole country, is a numerical majority or not. If you're not a majority, you're a minority, and therefore you're a member of a linguistic minority. Now, in Europe, particularly with the Council of Europe and a few other uh, European documents, there's a slightly different approach. 
for example, uh, the Irish language, even though less than half the population in Ireland speak Irish fluently. In the European system, the Council of Europe system, they're not considered to be a minority language, whereas they would be in terms of the international legal system. So I think we need to have a, con a conceptually understand that there are some nuances here. And therefore, it actually has significance in terms of which rights, which groups can claim which rights. That is really interesting. Our last episode is about minoritized languages from a research perspective, basically. And the researcher talked a lot about the terminology about it. And he said that he prefers the term minoritized instead of minority, because minority implies that it's something inherent to the language, where it's actually something that is done to the language, because it's, he doesn't think that the number of speakers tells you a lot, but I do understand that maybe in a, in a legal sense, it does play a bit of a role, right? So it's, it's really, it's first of all, difficult to juggle the terminology, but it's really interesting to think about it too. It is. Uh, I think the international approach is a more straightforward and clear approach, to be very honest, in the sense that if you are a majority language, if more than half the population of the country speaks a particular language, well, clearly it's a majority language. I think part of the confusion in this confusion, if we can actually refer to that, is sometimes the assumption or the presumption that referring to minority refers to an issue of dominance or of being dominant. And that, from the point of view of international law, is completely incorrect. In addition, the concept of domination is a problematic one. <laughs> Does it mean in the linguistic field, the political field, the economic field, the cultural field? Does it mean in the whole country? a part of the country, part of a city. There are no answers to that. And in the case of Irish, just very quickly, I think it actually shows the danger sometimes or the difficulty of referring to minoritized language. Irish language, even though it is official, and even though it's not considered, in my understanding, it's not considered to be a minority language because it is official in Ireland in a number of uh, Council of Europe documents. Well, in terms of the international system, it clearly is a minority language because not a very high percentage of the population in Ireland considered to be their, their mother tongue. But the use of Irish is actually absolutely not guaranteed in Ireland. Mm. The, if you're a native Irish speaker and you're trying to have access to various government services in your language, believe me, there are a lot of obstacles. Yeah, And so at least with the UN system or the international concept of minority rights and linguistic minorities, the Irish are actually fully deserving, if you will, of all language rights that can be claimed by minorities in terms of international human rights law. Uh, whereas in Europe, it's actually not so clear. And is it a minoritized language or not? I don't know, quite frankly, but I do know that at the international level, it is the minority language. And in fact, the use of the Irish language uh, can actually be in, uh, raised in terms of non-compliance of their uh, human and language rights in terms of international law. Right. So there seems to be some also contextual considerations to take into account. So uh, a language doesn't necessarily mean that it's minoritized in general, but it might also depend on the environment that it seems to be a minority in like the case of Irish, like you were mentioning. Um, another example is the, the case of uh, the English language in Cameroon. In Cameroon, it is English and French are both official languages, supposed to be a bilingual state, 
in practice, and in fact, this is one of the reasons there's a violent conflict in Cameroon. English speak members of the English speaking minority, because they're only about 20, 25% of the population who consider themselves to be English speaking. They will actually claim that they don't have equal access to education in their own language. They cannot use their own language, even though it's official, in terms of state, uh, the legal judicial system. And in terms of the UN system, there's no doubt it's a minority language. And their human rights in relation to the use of this official language are not fully being respected. And partly they could claim that they have a series of language rights as a linguistic minority, even though it's an official language. Whether it's minoritized or not, once again, it's not even clear to me what minoritized means, because there are different definitions of what is minoritized, sometimes referring to the issue of dominated or not, or treated as dominated by authorities. Once again, the UN system or the UN approach is clearer, neater, and actually you cannot invoke different concepts or not to try to exclude minorities from their human rights. Because by the way, that's quite often one approach done by authorities. They try to deny that mm. they're, they're dealing with a minority or a minoritized group, but having a clear and quite, I would say, objective definition, in a sense, is a way of not permitting states to deny the existence of minorities and to deny their, their human rights. And it does make sense that for language policies, you need a strict, you need a clear, very concise definition that cannot be bent in any kind of way. That's what we actually uh, propose here, certainly at the United Nations. Uh, in Europe, it's once again, slightly more complex and problematic, quite frankly. As I said, Irish is actually not considered, if I remember correctly, as an official language under the European Charter for regional or minority languages. Any official language cannot be uh, apparently a minority language in Europe. But, you know, having an official language does not mean you have a right to use the language as counterintuitive as that may sound. There are, in fact, quite a few countries that have a large number of official languages, but they don't actually mean that you have the right to obtain mm -hmm. services in these other official languages. So you have to... I think those are some of the concepts that can lead to some confusion. There are differences, as I said, between the European system and the international system, but that's for historical and in some, de some degree, perhaps even cultural reasons that that has occurred. Yeah, and the example you provided as well, it's a very, it's an excellent one to explain that because, especially because we're so used to thinking of English as the majority language by excellence. And we're actually, we'll touch on that in a question later on. So among your roles, you are also the current special rapporteur for minority rights. Uh, what does that entail and how did you get there? Yes, uh, the, uh, the precise title is the um, uh, UN Special Rapporteur on Minority Issues. Um, this is actually an elected position, expert position. The United Nations has a whole system called the Special Procedures where a, a number of independent experts, such as special rapporteurs, but also members of different working groups deal with, with human, human rights areas, such as freedom of religion, freedom of expression, racial discrimination, and minority issues. All of these positions are elected positions by the United Nations Human Rights Council. And so we are elected by the uh, Human Rights Council for a three-year mandate, renewable once only, as independent experts, not employees of the United Nations. We're actually not employed. 
We, however, have a mandate, certain responsibilities, which are clarified in detail in resolutions of the Human Rights Council with a supporting staff to actually be, be able to carry that mandate. And we have different hats in that capacity, <laughs> uh, dealing with human rights issues for, around the world within our mandates, of course. But how did you even get to that point? Ah, yes, thank you. There was the, um, the second element that I missed. Yeah, because that we're really interested in that. Well, um, I, uh, <laughs> I guess it, one has to understand that I have an academic background. I've been a professor of law for a number of decades. And one of my main areas of interest has always been the, the rights of minorities, particularly in the area of language, but also a little bit on indigenous people's rights and also rights in relation to the prevention of ethnic conflicts and issues of autonomy, especially national minorities to prevent conflicts. I've done a little bit of work also in relation to migrants' rights. Mm. And so in addition to those, if you will, substantive issues, I've also worked a great deal in Australia because I lived and taught in Australia for 20 years, but I actually have also taught in different parts of the world, including in Ethiopia, in the Maldives, in Indonesia, and in Japan, in Finland, and Northern Ireland, and uh, Northern Italy also, so, and a few other places. And so because of this fairly global experience in human rights and in the human rights of minorities particularly, I was elected by the UN Human Rights Council and in 2017, I think, um, to this mandate because of this wide-ranging experience, global experience, but specifically in relation to minorities. My God, that must have been a lot of experience that you've got. And that's, even if you are, if you're coming from an academic background and you do it quite rationally, so those are still quite emotional topics that you work on, right? So that's going to take a toll at some point, no? Um, you have to be able to detach. And that's a very, uh, let me say, it's a very perceptive uh, uh, question because in the area of minority rights, it's not simply, you, you know, some, some rather abstract claims that to have the right to use your language uh, in, in relation to your tax, in, income tax form, for example. We are dealing with issues such as statelessness, that individuals have no citizenship. And when I, the reason I raise that is more than three quarters of the world's approximately 15 million people who have no, no citizenship whatsoever, and therefore they are amongst the most vulnerable in the world, are actually from minority backgrounds. Mm -hmm. They tend to be specific minorities where the government of the country where they were born, for example, does not recognize them as citizens. The Rohingya in Myanmar is one of the better known uh, groups. But there is also, for example, the Russian-speaking minorities in Estonia and Latvia. Very large number of them, in fact, significant proportion, are not citizens of any country. So they cannot vote in national elections. They cannot own certain types of property. There are certain jobs they cannot actually occupy and so forth. And this is the pattern around the world. Most stateless people are actually from minority backgrounds. You have also quite a few Roma in different countries right. in Europe. You also have Haitians, or rather Dominicans of Haitian descent, whose ancestors, grandparents, great-parents were from Haiti, but moved to the Dominican Republic at one stage. There are hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of them who are not citizens. And in India right now, there's a process where millions more because of their ethnic and religious background, 
are being denied that they're citizens of India. This is happening right now in a region called Assam. In addition, hate speech in social media. Most hate speech in social media actually targets minorities, religious, ethnic minorities. Think of anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. Islamophobia. Think of anti-Black and anti-Hispanic speech in the United States. And this is a pattern around the world. Genocide. Almost all cases of modern-day genocide have targeted minorities. In fact, it's still happening. We still have every year situations where there are there is incitement to commit genocide against a particular minority. And if I can share this experience, I remember the very first year I was elected uh, as as um, as special rapporteur that someone had had actually found my personal email address and sent photos of individuals that had been massacred, uh, minority members that had been massacred, uh, slit open with machetes uh, in Africa. That was a bit of a shock when you start uh, as a special rapporteur, but that's the reality that we deal with. In fact, we could say that most atrocities around the world, uh, or a a very large proportion of atrocities around the world, usually target minorities. Yeah. Therefore, I have to, but often I have to deal with uh, well difficult situations. Let's put it that way. Well, that's an intense introduction to the oh, job. Oh, yes, it was. Yeah. I mean, we're on a podcast, so people can see our shocked faces. But yeah, that is, that is intense. Yeah. You, but as I said at the beginning, you do have to be able to detach yourself. You're a mm. professional. You have very serious uh, responsibilities. And in a sense, at least I can do that. Um, um, I do not remember, well, I vaguely remember, but those photos did shock me initially, but you have to be, be able to put that aside and try to, to do your, your job, your work, you know, to try to protect those that are often amongst the most vulnerable in the world. Yeah. Well, it's good that you're able to, because I don't know if I would. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, does the, in, does the institution provide a support and training for uh, dealing with this, uh, with this? emotional load that uh, a job like that would put easier? Well, actually, that's a very good question. Uh, the short answer is yes. The longer okay. uh, answer is a little bit more complicated. If you are a full-time staff, certainly, uh, mm-hmm. of the United Nations, par- uh, particularly working in, in the area of human rights, I know that there is a lot of support services that are available. But technically, um, we as special operators are not staff. And so I, I am... I have to admit, I haven't even considered whether or not we could need that kind of help, professional help, in fact, uh, because of some of the situations we may be exposed to. I assume that the the answer is yes, but uh, Mm -hmm. usually because we have limited mandates in time, perhaps it doesn't really come up very often. But um, probably if it did, I would suspect we would have be able to have access. Interesting, yes. But once again, uh, most of us, our mandates are only three years or mm. six, year, six years, if extended. So, and even my mandate will be finished in another year and a half. And perhaps I can say I'm looking forward to the, uh, to the break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. And I mean, three years is still uh, quite an extensive time. Yeah, for sure. I definitely think in so many professions nowadays, you see that a lot more could be done to you know, put a focus on mental health and making sure that you provide the support for people, mm-hmm. especially at this time. Uh, I think one of the uh, aspects that perhaps is not, um, it's not clear from the, uh, what I've uh, said earlier, 
is that special rapporteurs are actually not full-time in that position. The mandate is not considered to be a full-time occupation. Most uh, special rapporteurs are either uh, academics, they are themselves professors in a university or in a research center, or they might even be former diplomats. So we have a variety of individuals, but uh, usually none of them, or almost none of them, would actually occupy the mandate on a full-time basis. Mm -hmm. So that gives you a little bit more flexibility, perhaps, to deal with sometimes with, with difficult situations. I can imagine it would be a lot to handle, you know, working on so many positions at the same time and with such, um, you know, high and, responsibility uh, situations. Yeah, and I would say, if I can, uh, if I may, that particularly for, um, there are gender, gender considerations here. Uh, I do know of a number of special rapporteurs who are uh, women with children, and they're right. single women, professional single women with children. And they sometimes have continue to teach at a university, for example, raise a, a child or children, and carry on their um, responsibilities as a special rapporteur. I admire those women hugely. It would be an extremely difficult uh, balancing act. And admittedly, we did have it, uh, certain issues that the United Nations, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, should take into consideration their particular responsibilities as mothers, as professionals, and as special rapporteurs, and to provide a bit more support. That has come up, by the way, in the past. And I think the United Nations has done better. But you can just imagine how difficult that might be. Yeah. I have a huge amount of respect for those women who actually can do that. Absolutely. And we also, you know, we live in a society that puts a pressure on women as well to be the primary parent. And uh, there's also a cultural, a cultural aspect of feeling like uh, when you're a mother, you are being the primary parent, even if you do work full time. And yes, absolutely. As I said, it was an issue that, that did exist, probably still exists to some extent with the United Nations needed to actually understand. The, uh, I, I don't like to use the word burden, but the the requirements of all of these responsibilities that um, women in particular have as independent experts for the United Nations. Thank you for raising that point. For my next question, in the Minority Report of 2020, you described the importance of proper understanding and implementation of international human rights obligations. Can you tell us more about the report and why linguistic rights are such an important issues and is it being taken seriously by these supranational organizations? You know, language is power, language is access. If you do not know the language uh, that is used by the state, by government, you will have barriers in terms of accessing services, including in the area of ed education. At the same time, uh, it, because language is such a primordial aspect of our identity as human beings, human beings being language animals in the end, a state that, does, that disregards the language of its own people, and which does happen, actually is imposing burdens and barriers on people who have different languages from the language preferred by the state. What occurs sometime at the United Nations level, and not only at the United Nations, but even in Europe, is a kind of denial of the, I think, the central role that language plays, not only in identity, but also in power and access to employment, services, health, uh, education, and so on. We all know, or I assume most of your uh, listeners will know, that the best form of education is education in the language of a child. 
You might be surprised, however, or if I tell you that many governments or a number of governments I have been in contact with as a special rapporteur deny this. They'll say, no, what needs to be done is simply to force a child to learn the, in the official language. Now, that is, by the way, incorrect. Let me be very clear about this. That is actually a very false understanding of the significance of language in the education of a child. Most, I think, social linguists or linguists understand that it's very important at the beginning to communicate as much as possible, as effectively as possible with children. And the best tool of communication is the child's own language. If you try to teach a child in a language he or she does not understand, you will get, obviously, less good results, to put it very simply. And so even in terms of human rights, it has been a quite a struggle to clearly um, enunciate, if you will, in terms of international human rights, that in the area of the right to education, the language of a child is an important factor in access to quality, equal education for all. Being taught in a foreign language or language you don't understand does not uh, represent equal quality education for that child. A child that is taught in his or own language has a, a benefit, an advantage, and those who do not are disadvantaged. In terms of international human rights, when, as soon as you say the word disadvantage because of language or gender or any other area, this can constitute discrimination, a violation of the right to education, inequality without discrimination. That reasoning, which is quite solid in terms of international human rights law, is one which has not really been enumerated or enunciated very clearly until recently, I think. In 2017, there was the first UN document on the language rights of minorities. And in that document, we, we clearly set out how and why, in terms of human rights, children have the right to education in their own language in wherever it's practical and possible, even. And, and that's only in 2017, I have to say. So for us at the UN, that probably is the first time that a UN document states this so clearly from the point of view of international human rights obligations. Wow. Others like UNESCO has recognized this uh, and others in different parts of the world, particularly in the field of education. But from the legal point of view, as a human right that you claim, 2017, only a few years ago that we set it out in a document on the language rights of minorities. It's only, also only a few years ago that uh, as a special rapporteur, I actually held a series of forums around the world, regional meetings on the issue of education and the language rights of minorities. Um, so I think the basis is there. It's actually rather clear that you have a human right under certain conditions, certain contexts, but it's, it's something that um, has been late in being clarified in the UN system and still has to permeate more the UN inst uh, institutions. Because generally the UN in and different parts of the U UN, I don't think has really absorbed that this is the proper understanding of international human rights. Well, that seems like such an important uh, step forward and such a, an amazing achievement. Particularly, it's important because in, an, in recent years, we have seen some, um, a number of governments actually suppressing or uh, reducing 
the use of minority languages in education. By the way, particularly in Europe, this has been quite noticeable. And it seems that many governments in, or increasing number of governments in Europe are kind of in a denial mode. They actually deny that uh, minorities have the right to be educated in their language at all. This is very unfortunate, and it is a phenomenon which has been occurring increasingly in recent years for, for different reasons. That's quite a worrisome development, if you consider that we're in the 21st century and we should be progressing, that we're sometimes just take steps back, and that has happened politically all over the world in the last years without mentioning any examples. But yeah, that's... Yeah, uh, in fact, uh, I, would, I would add to that that part of the phenomenon is that there is an increasing nationalism. And when I say nationalism, I mean majoritarian nationalism, which means that in a number of countries, they will say Canada for the Canadians, meaning that the any others who are different from the majority have to, well, have to assimilate or to have to absorb, they have to accept that because there are minorities, this is not their country. And the country has a specific language or a specific culture And those who are out have to either accept the majority and the majority's culture and language and, and religion in some cases, or get out. And we are seeing a rise of this form of nationalism in a number of European and other countries, by the way, which is leading to the uh, repression, I would say, of the rights of minorities in a number of areas. Right. I actually think that Scotland is actually doing a quite good job because nationalism here is defined completely different. It's actually really inclusive. What I really appreciate, because although it's called the Scottish National Party that is governing right now, um, it has a bit of, a, I'm from Germany, so nationalist always has a really bad connotation with me, obviously. But um, for Scotland, it's really quite the opposite of what you would expect nationalism to be. And I can really appreciate that. I'm glad you said you mentioned that because in Canada also there's quite an inclusive form of Canadian nationalism. Mm. Of course, we are bilingual. In fact, we're more than bilingual because at the regional level levels, uh, you have other parts of Canada that has have slightly different official languages, or a few anyway. Nunavut, which is in the extreme right. north of the country, actually has nine official languages. The main one, well, the main two are uh, English and Inuktitut, the language of Inuit. But also the Constitution of Canada says that multiculturalism is a fundamental value of, of Canada as a country. And, and actually oh, the beautiful. is one of inclusion. You can have very different cultures, languages, and as much as possible, those languages are supposed to be accommodated, by the way, even immigrant languages. In practice, it's not always perfect, but the principle is one of inclusion of multiculturalism. Um, I think the Scottish approach is a little bit along those lines, that Scotland is a mosaic of all of its components and that everyone is welcome in the Scottish nation. For Bilingualism Matters, I'm also active in the Refugee Working Group, and I don't really like the name of that, but that kind of gives you an idea of what we do. And I went to a series of events with the Scottish Refugee Council, and one of the speakers had a beautiful quote that migrants from whatever their background might be, just add another thread to the tartan that is Scotland. And I love that picture because it's very Scottish, but it's also mm -hmm. very inclusive. And, and I really like that. It's very poetic. And I really, really like That's that. That's a very nice way of putting it too. 
Yeah. Because you can actually have visually something. I like that. So we also got a question about the distinction between individual human rights and community rights. So you've worked on a lot of different cases in lots of different countries, and you are an extraordinary professor of law at the University of Pretoria. Fun fact, I have studied at that university before. Okay. I was at Tux. Yes. Um, So I was there in 2012. So that was a long time ago. But yeah, I did my semester abroad in Pretoria. And I can genuinely say it was the best six months of my life. It was, Mm -hmm. I had the best time ever. But yeah, South Africa is a very multilingual country, 12 official languages, if if you include sign language. So how do countries like South Africa go about this? Because it's one thing to maintain a language within a community, right? But how do countries provide accessible information for like medical, political information in those types of languages? Or you already mentioned that you kind of hinted on that, the actual right to be able to speak your language on the streets without being discriminated against, right? So those are different aspects, of course. But how does that work and which one prevails in the end? Okay. I think we have to distinguish between when a state claims that a large number of official languages and what happens on the ground. It's one one aspect. The second is that having different official languages doesn't mean that the official languages will always be used everywhere. Right. In the case of, I think Bolivia is actually a good example. I forget how many official languages there are, but there's quite a few because they include, I think, almost all of the indigenous languages. But in Bolivia, what they've done is that they have, if I remember correctly, in the regions where the groups like the Aymara or the Quechua are mainly concentrated, then at the regional level, you provide some services, public services in the languages on a regional or even sometimes kind of local basis. So on one hand, and as it's like what I said in Canada, in Canada, there are two national official languages. But at the regional level or the provincial territorial level, you may have separate ones. So on a territorial basis, like in Nunavut, you will have access to a lot of government services because most, well, yeah, there is a majority of speakers in Nunavut who are Inuit. Mm. Therefore, the Inuktitut would be the obvious language for services. So on a regional basis, you can do that. So if you include national official languages and regional official languages, you can actually have very practical use of these languages where you have concentrations of speakers. Think also of India. I think India, as some of you may know, has something like, I think, 55 official languages, not at the national level, but at the state or territorial level. Of course, one state, I think Tamil Nadu, is at least 50 million people or 60 million people. So it's a large population. But when you have large populations and pockets or significant concentrations of a group, a language group, a language minority, it's actually, practically speaking, it can be done, as in the case of India, uh, where they can accommodate roughly 55 languages in different parts of the country that are national, maybe not at the, uh, that are official, maybe not at the national level, but at the regional level, at least. Unfortunately, the other side, and to go back to the example of South Africa, and also Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, I think, recognizes all languages spoken on its territory as official. In reality, and here is the problematic side, in many countries such as that one, and even in South Africa, 
they in practice say, well, all these languages are official, but we will only use one or two. So that's why you have to distinguish official as merely a symbolic gesture yeah. and official meaning individuals have the right to use a language. The two are actually quite different. Mm. They, they don't always correspond, sometimes not at all. And in the case of Zimbabwe, they simply do not correspond. English is the main language. There is another one, I forget what it's called, that is used on a, almost as a lingua franca in different parts of Zimbabwe. And the same has been occurring in South Africa. Beyond English, there is not a huge amount of use of the language by state authorities. There was Afrikaans, which is also an official language that is in some use, as you will know if you were in Pretoria. And by the way, the Afrikaans language is almost completely, my understanding is that there is not much use of the Afrikaans language at the University of Pretoria anymore. There's been a number of changes, legislative changes, constitutional interpretations that make English almost at this point, the only language, uh, the only official language of South Africa. And to think about that happened, especially when you mentioned the use at the educational level, at the institutional level, that has only taken place in the last 30 years, right? That's a very recent Correct. development, of course. Yeah, it is. And I will say this, I find it unfortunate. For example, there are languages like Zulu. Mm. Zulu is almost a majority language, not quite. It's the largest language group. I guess, yeah. I think it's unfortunate that really there's almost no official use of Zulu in South Africa. To me, that makes absolutely no sense. I actually think, and there is, uh, well, I'm not going to venture too much, but my understanding is that there are concerns in terms of academic performance, because you are still teaching children in language, mainly English, that is not their own mother tongue. And I think there are some consequences, especially with younger children. But that's the decisions that have been hmm. made in South Africa and Zimbabwe and in quite a few other countries also of promoting only one language as official and in a way not reflecting the reality on the ground. Because the reality of the ground on the ground is that there are other languages that are spoken, some are very, very, very large uh, proportions of the population. And when you have language policies that don't reflect the people, I think that's where you actually have tensions also. And, ex and situations of exclusion that can occur. Very interesting. I was actually just thinking, I think that Namibia is also uh, very interesting because they have just one official language. I think it's called the main language, and that's English, I think, isn't it? It is English. Um, there was actually a case that went to the United Nations concerning Namibia because at one point in Namibia, English is the only official language in the constitution. There were groups, it was actually an African group, they, they were called Bastes. And they're an African group, but they actually speak Afrikaans. There was a prohibition on government officials, public servants to, to speak Afrikaans. It was simple as that. Even if you can speak it as a civil servant, you're not allowed to use that language with the public. The case went to the United Nations Human Rights Council. And the council considered, eventually decided it was discriminatory mm -hmm. because it actually prevented individuals to use their own language for access to public service when there was no explanation why. There was evidence that many people, including the public servants themselves, that they could speak Afrikaans. So there was no issue of not being able to communicate. It's just the government had prohibited it, and the government refused to explain why. The government simply stated, well, English is the official language. And the committee said, well, no, come on, guys, that's, that's not enough. Why? Because you can use Afrikaans here. It's an issue of access to public service, uh, public services. So. So this was actually, so the language, that language policy 
that particular case was one of discrimination, even, even if it was the only official language of the country, to only use that official language and to pre prevent people from having access, the, having a barrier, a linguistic barrier, to accessing these services without a reasonable justification is discriminatory. Yeah, that just kind of illustrates that they, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Like, why would multilingualism in such a multilingual environment be considered unnatural or exactly but it also really shows the impact such a political decision can have and certainly coming from canada where we are officially bilingual i mean it's not perfect either but having bilingualism does not exclude actually it's a form of inclusion right? mm -hmm. the more languages you can use actually the more inclusive you are uh, particularly for individuals who might be challenged and if the government really represents the people well when the people speaks different languages as much as possible, this should be reflected also in the services provided by, by the state, by government. I guess the main argument against it would be money and time, right? Or time and money. But if you have, you know, a very significant proportion of the population that yeah. speaks another language, then that argument falls on its face, really. Particularly because as a population of the, of the country, they also pay taxes. It's also their money. So why is their money only used for the language of the majority? Uh, to benefit that proportion of the population. Yeah, very good but point. This is a very, it's a very, as you can imagine, a very sensitive area. Because for many governments, they assume, well, once it's official, once a language is official, then there is no, you cannot contest that determination. And from that flows the logic that once you have an official language, we can force everyone to use it and deny access to people who, uh, who cannot use it, for example. That actually, by the way, is incorrect in terms of human rights obligations, such as non-discrimination. You still have to show, is it reasonable not to use a particular minority language? If it's too expensive, that's actually fine. It's not discriminatory. But if you have a third of the population of the country that uses a minority language, then it would not be reasonable to deny any use of that minority language in terms of education or public services. I'm working on a paper right now that is about the international, the census on an international level regarding language questions in the census. And a beautiful answer we got from the Swiss Bureau of Statistics, because they ask, like, I think three or four questions in the census about languages and where they're used and how they're used and which language is used. The answer was, we asked so many questions because we just consider ourselves by default to be a multilingual country. So, of course, we're interested in this information. So this is just, it's, it's a non-issue, basically. I really like that approach. This really leads well into my next question, because we talked about like majority languages and multilingualism. But from the other perspective, monolingualism, especially in the English-speaking world, is still quite a big thing, right? In these largely monolingual countries, there's this feeling of this right to monolingualism, quote-unquote. And with that, I mean that often English speakers do not want to learn a second language because they feel that everybody should be able to speak English anyway because it's the lingua franca of the world. Oh, they feel this entitlement, I often feel. And they're not aware of the linguistic privilege they have. So how would you define that linguistic privilege? And how do we combat this notion of that monolingualism is the right way? Because statistically, it's not. No, and I would say throughout much of our humanity, multilingualism has been true in many parts of the world. If you mm -hmm. think of Africa, in many parts of Africa, I think traditionally, 
it's been very common for individuals to actually know two or three languages. In fact, and this might be the case for you, it's easy to meet an individual in different parts of Africa, not everywhere, but in different parts of Africa, who know three, four, five languages, uh, because these are the languages in the market. These are the languages that the next village uh, mm -hmm. will, will speak. And so I think we are entering a rather strange period, frankly, where the, it's considered that monolingualism is actually mo a more natural state of affairs. It's not. It, it's actually, unfortunately, mainly, it, it sounds, by the way, I wasn't aware that this is actually a, such a big thing, a right to be monolingual. It's obviously a position of those who are in a position of privilege, the view of those in a position of privilege. And it's certainly not true around the world, by the way. Yes, certain elites, members of certain elites, those who travel the world tend to know English, although I would argue that on a regional basis, this is not always true. If you're in Latin America <laughs> and you try to just go around with only English, well, yeah, maybe you'll make it. But you know what? You really ought to know Spanish at the very mm -hmm. least. So I would say that the world in reality is more of a, has actually a, a more regional linguistic multilingual approach. I would say that in Spanish, uh, Spanish would be a, one of the re main regional languages in uh, Central and South America. And I would say English, yes, but not so much. In many parts of Eastern Europe, former Soviet Union, Central Asia, I would say Russian is actually a regional language. And to try to only go around outside of the tourist trap areas only with English, I think it's not very, uh, would not be very effective, quite frankly. So I think it's very elitist and from a position of privilege to assume that even though English is a lingua franca for certain areas, uh, including global travel, university, rather rarefied uh, areas, beyond that around the world, I don't think it is, it is accurate to describe English as the only needed lingua franca. I think there are regional lingua francas that actually have an extremely important role to play. So the idea of unilingualism as something that needs to be recognized or not recognized, I'm not sure how you describe it, as something that is natural and even a, a, an entitlement, I think it is actually erroneous, it's incorrect, but it is the position of those who actually privilege English over all languages and who actually feel that English should probably be imposed even further in various levels mm -hmm. to the detriment of actually hundreds of millions, if not billions of people in the world. So unilingualism is a question of privilege at the cost to others who are not actually necessarily fluent in that language of privilege. So I would certainly say that it's not, on the one hand, it's not the reality of the world. Not, yeah. everyone, not everyone speaks English. Billions are not fluent in English. Secondly, it is from a position of privilege, and one has to recognize that this privilege can be at the cost of discrimination, of exclusion of others. And I would actually think that this kind of narrative has to be questioned, in fact, contested, because it actually is not the reality on the ground, and it would be extremely disadvantageous for a very large proportion of the population. Coming from an expert, I hope people that are listening to the podcast will understand 
the importance of this. It's also ironic that we're recording this in English and I'm, you know, <laughs> using you can do English. it in French. I would, I, would, uh, I would be happy in French. Um, uh, can I also add that it, it actually is, I think, important to realize that trying to force English down the throats of everyone in the world is actually detrimental. It's detrimental to our the reality of our human diversity. Mm -hmm. Language is normal. Languages, plural, is the normal human condition. So what is it that you're actually trying to achieve by saying, well, we should be able to be unilingual? Are you actually trying to weaken the survival of you know, the thousands of language that, languages that are still there and make part, are still part of our beautiful, beautiful human diversity? Are you trying to impose the supremacy of native English speakers over all other segments of society? Are you actually trying to act to the detriment of the hundreds of millions of children who would actually be better taught in their own language, but are willing to force a foreign language in order to what? Weaken their, their, their academic educational performance in order to have perhaps have individuals who can occupy lower rungs of employment and society because they don't fully master the language of the masters, if I can use that, that wording. We actually have different episodes on these kinds of topics. We have an episode on language, race, and ethnicity. We also have an episode on accents and everything. So if you want to refer back to them, you go listen to them. They're great because it kind of touches upon this exact thing. So we've covered a lot of ground here, but in your opinion, what are the key steps to ensure linguistic rights for minoritized communities? How do you tangibly say that a linguistic right is being violated or upheld? And is there a definition for that? There is, although the answer is slightly different in Europe. At the international level of the United Nations, it's, I think, fairly clear now that when we talk about language rights, we're talking about human rights. And so you actually have a, a legal and international legal architecture protecting human rights, including the language rights of minorities, using, for example, freedom of expression includes the right to use uh, a language in private activities. It's actually very important human rights because in a number of countries, particularly linguistic minorities, face uh, restrictions in the use of their own language in private areas. I think it's Latvia, had, which has recently adopted legislation that actually restricts how private schools, the language that private schools can teach in. Non-discrimination means that you can claim that it's discriminatory not to use a minority language in areas of public education, public services like healthcare, public healthcare, healthcare and so on. So that gives you the kind of, um, if you will, a mechanism, a structure to be able to claim the language rights of minorities through the legal obligations that flow from a number, I, I just listed a few, a number of human rights and international law, human rights obligations. Unfortunately, in Europe, it's actually not so straightforward or less straightforward. You do have treaties in Europe uh, dealing with language, such as the, uh, well, the Framework Convention on the Protection of National Minorities and the European Charter for Regional or Minority Languages. Unfortunately, those two treaties, they're legal documents, but they're extremely weak, weaker even than the UN system. And by the way, the UN system is not that strong for different reasons. Okay. But the framework convention, it does have a number of language rights, but it's called a framework 
convention. And that's a legal trick, by the way. Because it's a framework, most legal experts agree, it means that you cannot directly apply this from a legal point of view. Oh. There you go. The European Charter for Regional or Minority Languages, you might have a number of previous guests that have talked about that document. It is a treaty also. Once again, there's a bit of a trick being played, I must say, on linguistic minorities. The European Charter, the very first sections indicate this document does not create any rights. No one, no individual, no group can claim a right under this legal document. That's, so on the one I did hand, not know that. Wow. I know. Now, I'm being very blunt, and sometimes I'm criticized for that. But there is a problem with the way the legal documents that are there to protect minorities or languages have been, have been actually accepted and formulated. Those two examples are not accidents. This was done intentionally because many governments in Europe actually did not want to go very far in relation to those rights. So they played a little bit of the a game, I'm afraid, with the uh, populations in Europe mm -hmm. by actually providing, presenting two documents, which and their detail are actually very, very good. I'm on record for saying this. But then what they give on one hand, they take away on the other, because you cannot use either of those legal documents directly in the court of law in Europe, because the first is a framework convention, and the second specifically says, no one can raise this treaty in terms of claiming a right flowing from this document. There you go. It's very clever, I have to say, but not entirely honest. I, I would also even venture to say. Yeah, I had no idea. I did not know that. And there would be no point in stating that in a document if you weren't actively trying to prevent this document from making the complete difference. The... I mean, it has made, though the two documents have contributed. I mean, they do create obligations. So even though you don't have the right to raise it in a court of law, there is still, in theory, an obligation on the governments to respect, uh, to comply with their legal obligations. So there's pressure, and it, it has led some governments to actually change uh, in some areas to better comply with their legal obligations. However, it has also led, and I don't think anyone would deny that today, to many governments, particularly in recent years, to simply ignore the two documents because there's no, there are no real consequences. Individuals cannot raise these issues in a court of law. It was more political pressure in the past that seemed to help a great deal. But today, I think that's much weaker. The political pressure is no longer as strong to try to get governments comply with their Council of Europe legal obligations. Yeah, and this idea that, you know, that certainly things that can be done better kind of leads me to our final question, which is what can we as a society do to help with this issue other than talking about it, raising awareness like we're doing today on this podcast? I would say, even though what I've just said sounded very pessimistic in a sense, most governments don't like to be, to be shamed named and shame. And so even if you have no recourse directly in a court of law so that governments respect their own legal obligations, you can still name and shame them. You can still pressure governments to say, listen, or look here, you actually have committed to provide education in the, this minority language in this country. 
we believe you. Uh, we are citizens or we are members of part of this country. You should comply with us. You can pressure your local member of parliament, your local politician. You can actually meet the ministers involved. You can go to the media and, and start raising a certain cause, you know, that the government needs to respect its own legal commitments. And sometimes that kind of action, action from the ground up, actually works. Not always, particularly if you're a minority. That's the problem, being a minority. It's easier for politicians to ignore you. Let's you know, be very clear about that. Nevertheless, um, you do have tools that you can work with. If it is one of the treaties of the Council of Europe, Framework Convention or the European Charter, there is also a, an expert committee looking at the proper implementation of those documents. That adds a bit of pressure on various governments to do so. Sometimes you can convince other governments, for example, to go back to the Irish uh, situation. Well, there, there are Irish speakers in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. But the issue of the language, of the Irish language in Northern Ireland, sometimes you have the Irish government approaching the British government to say, you're not fully complying with, with the rights or the obligations that you have in relation to the use of the Irish language in Northern Ireland. So you can have quite a bit of pressure, particularly from, from civil society organizations that sometimes can bring some changes. So we shouldn't be as pessimistic. or We should not only look at the the failures and the weaknesses, there are also other avenues that can be used because governments, particularly in a democracy, aren't supposed to respond when the citizenship rises up. Thank you so much for that. That is very useful information to know. Also, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It was incredibly interesting and we're sure that our listeners will have taken a lot of information and a lot of educational information as well. And I'm, I'm pretty sure we could con continue this conversation. I could always come up with more questions, but we do really appreciate that you took the time. Well, Vittoria and Eva Maria, thank you very much also. Thank you, thank you. so much. We really appreciate it. It's been an honor to hear from someone who has global experience dealing with language rights as they relate to minority issues. This was the last episode of the year, but we will be back in January with another fantastic episode. So please stay tuned for that. If you don't want to miss it, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on social media. That is MLSD underscore podcasts on Instagram and Twitter. Happy holidays to all that celebrate and we hope to welcome you back next year. Don't miss it. As always, stay safe, stay healthy and buone feste. Frohes fest. Et joyeux Noël et bonne heureuse année tout le monde. Au revoir.